Luke 6, verses 12 through 19. I read in Jesus' name. <clears throat> in those days, in these days, he went out to the mountains to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood with them on a level place and with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. He came to hear they who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him, and he healed them all. Let us pray. Father, as we come now to study your word, as we come to strive to understand these things and to apply them into our lives, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and that you would change us through your word and make us more like Christ. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our... Our sermon today is entitled Discipling because that's what Jesus is doing here. He is, he is beginning his discipleship process of the 12 apostles. And these ones he set aside to be apostles. But as, we, as I was praying about this, and I was praying about it this morning because this, a sermon's not really done until it's preached. <laughs> And after it's preached, then I can be done with it and move on to the next one. But I was, I was praying about this this morning. I was sitting there. It felt like it wasn't complete. And part of the reason, it dawned on me, why? Well, what's the purpose of this? Why, why is this put in here? You know, is this just a historic nicety? That, oh, now we know how Jesus, you know, called his disciples. How he called the apostles. Okay, well, that's handy. Now we know. Like, No. It's more than that because this isn't random. Luke didn't just add this to it just because. Because as you know, John says, you know, if all of the things that Jesus did were written down, the whole world could not contain it. And so then of all the things that Jesus did, why this? And so there's two reasons that came to mind as I was praying about that. One, because this is what God is doing in you. Right now, this is what God is doing in you. God is working to disciple you, each and every one of you. He wants you to be apostles with a small a. Not necessarily with a big a. You know, you're not going to be called to be one of the 12. You might not be. You might be called to go off into a foreign nation, you know, but you might not be. I don't know. That's between you and God, ultimately. But you are called to be a representative of Christ. Not just a disciple. A disciple is someone who learns from Christ. But you are called to be an apostle. We are called to be apostles of Jesus because we're called to be the lights of Christ into this world. And so what's God doing? He is discipling us into apostleship. And so how many of you have ever experienced a hardship? Do you know why? Because God wanted you to be discipled. That was an opportunity that God put into your life in order to train you to become more like Christ. You know, how many of you have experienced anything good? That again is an opportunity 
that God has put into your life to disciple you to become more like Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit is actively doing to us right now and all throughout our lives. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing to us. He is discipling us. Also then, so that's the vertical dimension, there is a horizontal dimension. We are too called to be making disciples of Jesus. You know, Sarah is not called to be making a disciple of Sarah, unless we need more Sarahs in this world. Uh, it could be worse. But yeah. Um, but that's not, you know, what are, who are we supposed to be making disciples of? Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? How do we do that? You know, Jesus tells us to make disciples. Okay, great. How? That's the horizontal thing. We are supposed to be mimicking this into the world. So what God is doing in us and what God is doing in other Christians then, we are also supposed to be bringing into this world as we interact with other people, as we interact with other Christians. And the first thing that Jesus does is he exemplifies what he wants his disciples to be, what he wants his disciples to do. He spends all night in prayer. You know, he is, he is living out this relationship with God. Now, Jesus is God, right? And how many of you have ever been tempted by the thought, you know, God already knows my prayers. He doesn't need me to pray. He already knows my wants. He already knows my desires. He already knows all this stuff. He doesn't need me to pray. I've been tempted by that thought. And then I run into verses like this where Jesus spent all night in prayer. It's like God already knew Jesus' thoughts. God already knew Jesus' desires. Jesus was already lined up with God's desires. So what's he doing? He is exemplifying one of the things that he's doing. He is exemplifying for his disciples, us and these apostles. What does it look like to walk as a Christian? It looks like to spend time in prayer. Because prayer, you know, Oswald Chambers says, prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. I would say that's partly right. Prayer definitely changes me. I can't say that prayer doesn't change God because we are told in the book of James that we have not because we ask not. And so I'm, I'm not going to delve into that. But prayer changes me. Prayer lines me up with God. And prayer lines me up with God as, because we become like the people that we're around. You know, we talked about this in our adult Sunday school, but this is a reality you know, and I know I've talked to a number of you about times in your life that you had to cut people out of your lives because you didn't want to become like them. I don't want to be like that. Well, you don't want to be like that, then the best thing to do is to remove that person from your life. Because ultimately, God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. A bad company corrupts good character. Paul tells us that. And so if I want to be a disciple of Jesus, who should I be spending time with? Jesus. So Jesus is exemplifying communion with God. Communion with God is partly done in prayer. He is spending all night with God in prayer. He is walking with God throughout that whole night. What exactly this looks like, we're not told, which that's also interesting. We're not told what he's asking we're not told how he's doing it. We're not told if he's on his knees or if he's standing up or if he's laying down. We're not told any of these things. And I think because all of those things are secondary, he is spending all night with God in prayer. So that is an exemplification. That is a demonstration of what we're supposed to do. Does that mean that you're supposed to spend all night in prayer? 
Not necessarily. But it does mean that we're supposed to spend time in prayer. This is a call that we have. This is an opportunity. This is a privilege. We have the privilege to interact with the God of the universe. Think about that. Like, we should be doing this, right? This is God. This is communion. And then from that communion, what does Jesus do? Verse 13. And the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So as Jesus was spending time in communion with God, he then went from that and he chose. Now this is very, actually very explicit in the Greek that it was Jesus doing the choosing. It's not he picked the ones that God had revealed to him. It's that he chose. In faith towards God, trusting God, these are the ones that Jesus chose. Which that's interesting. Because how many of you would just love it if God would just tell you what you're supposed to do? Have any of you ever said that? I just love it if God would just tell me what to do. Put it in the clouds, you know, I have it written on a sign as I'm driving by or, or whatever. You know, if God would just tell me. What? Do you trust God? You know, because that's the question. Can God even work through your choices? Can God work in an invisible manner, not just invisible as in you can't see it, but invisible in that you can't feel it? Like, I feel that God's leading me this way. What if I don't feel anything? Are my feelings the necessary revelation of the working of God? No. Because I can trust God whether I'm feeling something or not. And so Jesus went and he chose. He didn't, he, and he chose. That's all it says. It doesn't say, and he chose those whom he felt were right. He chose those whom God led him to. He chose those whom God revealed. It doesn't say any of that stuff. It just says he chose. And so this is an encouragement to me. As I am in communion with God, I can trust God to change my decisions. I can trust God to guide my decisions. I can trust God to work in my decisions. I can trust God to correct my decisions. Because you know what? I can trust God. I don't have to trust my emotions. I don't have to trust the clouds. I don't have to look for, you know, I don't have to sacrifice a goat and look in its entrails. Sorry, I know that's kind of gross, but that's what people have done. In order to find the will of the gods... They've done all sorts of crazy things, thrown bones. We don't have to do that. We can trust God. I can trust God. Because that's what Jesus did. And that's how he interacted with this. And the ones he chose, this is, I tell you what, as pastor, this is incredibly encouraging. Jesus, I was going to say Motley Crue, but you know that's been stolen by, uh, yeah. And I'm not going to start singing. But... <laughs> No, not, Jesus chose, this, this is a crazy bunch. This is a motley bunch. They're so different. You know, these, these disciples, they don't all look alike at all. You know, this isn't some Norwegian gathering where we're all happy. This, <laughs> so he's got three here that are ridiculously impulsive. It starts out with Peter, Andrew, or Peter and Andrew. Now, we don't know much about Andrew, but we know quite a bit about Peter and James and John. And the beautiful thing about Peter, James, and John is they're really impulsive. They just do. 
you know, Peter is the one who stood up to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, you're wrong. This isn't going to happen. And I tell you what, had he thought through that, probably wouldn't have done it. I'm guessing that Peter didn't think through a lot of things and he just did them. James and John, they're impulsive too. You know what James and John wanted to do when the Samaritans rejected Jesus? They said, Jesus, let us call down fire. Like, let's just torch the whole thing. You know, I would say that that's kind of impulsive. To show the love of Jesus, we're going to kill you all. Like, yeah, no. That's not the way that this works. You know, that's why they're called sons of thunder. Um, yeah. But you think about that. How many of you have ever kicked yourself for being too impulsive? Oh, I have. Quite a few times. I tend to be this way. And so... He, Jesus picked an impulsive people. He doesn't just pick people that are, are thoughtful and are diligent and they only act after they've thoroughly explored every option. He doesn't do that. He, chose, he chooses three very impulsive people. He chooses a tax collector. Now, that's interesting because what was a tax collector? They were outsiders. They were, they were hated. They had... No reputation amongst the Jewish people. And so this idea that God can only use me when I rise in the sight of the people around me is not true at all. If, if I have done everything perfect in my life, then God could have used me. But since I've messed up in the past, God can't use that. It's like, no, that is not the way this goes because Matthew, Levi, was seen as a traitor to his people. He was seen as a tax collector and a sinner. So those tax collectors, they were right up there with prostitutes, with people who practiced witchcraft, with people who had abandoned God, you know, with apostates. That was where the tax collectors were put. You know, and it's like, okay, so what sins could you have that would be so bad that Jesus can't use you, that Jesus can't disciple you, that Jesus can't train you to become an apostle? Which sins are greater than Matthew's? Which reputation do you have that's, it, that's worse than Matthew's? Matthew is hated. Period. And that's the sort of people that Jesus chooses. And not only that, he chooses a zealot too. Did that get put on there? Did I forget to put that in there? No, I must have forgotten to put that in there. Then he chooses a zealot. So these are people that get along really well. Because you have a tax collector on one side that's hated by the people. And then you, there's who basically has chose Rome and money above the Jewish nation. And then you've got a zealot. The zealot is the one who chooses the Jewish nation above money, above fame, above ease, and above the Roman Empire because they are actively working. These were the first terrorists. Well, not the first terrorists, but these are definitely terrorists. They terrorized the Roman legions that were around. They terrorized the tax collectors. They terrorized everybody who showed any allegiance to Rome. The zealots fought against them. And so you've got Matthew and a zealot. And Jesus says, I think this would be a good idea. We're going to put them together. There's a lot of harmony here. Yeah, because Jesus only chose his people that are all alike. Yeah, no, not in the least. And Simon, who is called the zealot. And there's an article here. So when we're talking about zealots, so the, this is the way that the Greek works. 
When you put an article there, it means something. He's not just called zealot in that it's a title. He's called the zealot. And so this is a zealot of zealots. This is zealot par excellence. This is a high-level zealot. So you've got Matthew and one who lives zealotry for the Jewish nation. And so if, if you're ever interacting with someone and you're like, you know, you're not quite like me, and therefore you're probably not a Christian, you think back to this. Think, oh, you know, maybe God needs all sorts of people, all sorts of personalities, all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of histories, all sorts of us in order to bring his kingdom forward. Does everybody need to look like Joe Faldet in order to be a Christian? Absolutely not, because there are some places where I failed, just like there's some places where Simon, the zealot, would have failed, and where Matthew, the tax collector, would have failed. And so God brings these desperate things, these outside things, and he draws them all together into his discipleship. And then Jesus chooses 12, and one of them turns out to be a traitor. Think about that. You know, from an earthly standpoint, I would say that was a failure. Jesus discipled a traitor. How could Jesus not have known? Like, well, probably on some level Jesus knew. And at the same time, this Judas, Iscariot, still chosen by God, chosen by Christ to be a disciple, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, fulfilled the work of God. So if we ever make a decision you know, spend time with someone and then have them, have them backstab us. Spend time and show love towards someone and have them not receive it. We can't say, well, I guess I picked the wrong person. You know, we can't say that because Jesus, if we looked at it from the same viewpoint, we could say Jesus picked the wrong guy. Man, Jesus really botched it on that one. Would we say that? No. It's like, oh, this works to serve a greater purpose. Because I, I don't remember who wrote the song, but it was, about Judas' kiss. You know, what was it like to have Judas come up and kiss Jesus? A demonstration of fellowship was the thing that he used to betray Jesus. You know, like, Jesus really messed up there, right? Nope. That was the will of God. That was the will of God. And so this is, go ahead, Beth. Oh, yeah, yep, he chose Nathaniel who had no guile. Hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's another aspect of this because unlike the traitor who is a liar, you then have Nathaniel who didn't, he never lied because that's what it means to have no guile. What he was, that's what he was. He put on no airs, he put on no pretenses, he just, he was. And so that's another, what, opposite um, that Jesus brought together to create his 12. Thank you, Beth. I had forgotten about Nathaniel because, well, it wasn't in this text, so I wasn't thinking about all those other ones. But see, this is what I want people to share because you guys think about things that I don't think about. And so I appreciate that. Jim? It's interesting because, so when you talk about the zealot, my first thought was, well, Simon became a zealot for God. But it doesn't say that. It says he was the zealot at the time that he was called. And then Judas, who will become yeah. the traitor. So there was a lot of time that Judas 
wasn't the traitor that he did God's God's will apparently. Yeah. You know, he wasn't. He was apostolic. Yeah. Yeah. For, you're right. You're right. There was a a significant, uh, at least appearing significant time where Judas he did fulfill his role as an apostle, and then fell. It's like Jesus sent all the apostles out. It doesn't say and Judas came back a mass failure. <laughs> so apparently he. Was learning just like the rest. Well, and I suppose then Judas would have had to manifest the works of the Holy Spirit too. He would have cast out demons. He would have people would have been healed. You know, those external things aren't no matter how great and grand. Which is one of the reasons why you always have to hold people accountable and get to know people's lives. You can't just look at the external and say, "Well, obviously this person's a Christian. Otherwise, these things wouldn't be at work in them." Because Judas was an apostle. He did the works of an apostle. So, yeah, interesting. Good thought, Jim. He did, yep, and he was a thief, yeah, he, but he was in charge of it too, so. So is any church, is any church can be perfect? Because this was, this was a church to a good degree. You know, and you've got all of these people that are doing all of these amazing things, and yet at the same time, you have these different personalities, you have these different backgrounds, you have these different aspects Jesus is bringing them all together, and you know what Jesus is doing in all of them? He's discipling them, even the one that fell away, who rejected Jesus in the end. Finally, earnest ministry. He came down with them and stood in a level place. So some people think that Matthew's Sermon on the Mount is the same as this one. This is actually a different sermon because he came to a level place. We'll get into the Beatitudes and whatnot later. So Jesus gave two fairly similar... He gave two sermons that have similarities. How about that? And this one in Luke was a sermon on the plain. This one in Matthew was a sermon on the mount. But as Jesus is discipling his disciples, his apostles, he does it with them. So he doesn't just send them off and then do ministry. He actually is living a life with them. And he, went, he came down with them and stood on a level place and a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him. And so Jesus is actively working to teach these people and he teaches them that, you know, St. Francis of Assisi said, wherever you go, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Which is great. You know, that's a great thing to do. But we do need to be speaking too. You know, the, the necessity of words is big. So Jesus is actually actively speaking to his disciples, speaking to the apostles, speaking to all of these people the truths of God. Because what does it mean to be a disciple? Is to follow the truths of God. What it means to be an apostle is to follow God, to live that out. And so then we need, in a mental, as a mental thing, to know the truths of God. You need to know the truths of God. I need to know the truths of God because how else do I know the difference between what God has said and what Satan has said? You know, as I was picking on Ken during the Sunday school class, if he's in prayer and thinks the Holy Spirit speaks to him, how do you know know that it's the Holy Spirit and not Kathy speaking in another room? Because Kathy often does the work of the Holy Spirit, right, Kathy? No. Um, Not all, Okay. But, you know, how do you know? How do you know that this is Jesus and not Satan? We need to know the truths of God. How do you know the truths of God? It's by hearing them. 
It's by learning them. It's by bringing them into your mind. Because our mind is a battlefield. I think there's a book written about that. I don't know if I ever, I never read it. But, uh, but not only that, and to be healed. So they came to hear him, to learn about the truths of God, and to be healed of their diseases. And so what, what Jesus is doing is he's bringing these truths then into the physical world. You know, these truths, they're not just ethereal. They're not just out there. They're actually meant to be changing lives. And so as Jesus is applying these truths, people are being healed. What that looks like nowadays, you know what? I see people being healed. You know, as we pray for people, as we bring the truth of the power of prayer into people's lives, I see people being healed. You know, directly, immediately? Well, not, not necessarily. Sometimes. You know, but normally it's overtime. Think about Milo being healed. That he's doing better. You know, we praise God and so what do we do? We keep praying. Keep praying that God would heal that young man. We prayed for my brother that he would, you know, that his COVID would be gone. And as I was talking to him, um, or a little earlier, I don't remember what day. Um, sometime. <laughs> I'm not good with dates. Just ask Kirsten. Um, but as I was talking to him, then his... His fever had kept getting worse and worse. And then the day that we sent out on the prayer chain, went to bed that night, the worst that he had been, the next morning he's starting to get better. You know, it's like, well, that's an interesting timing. Could that be a coincidence? Well, I suppose it could be a coincidence. You know what? Why the next morning? We sent that out. And the next day, he's on the upswing. I would say that's the work of God. God's healing him. You know, because everything before that was down and then it came up. And so what is this? This is the application of the truths of God into this world that changed the world. This is healing. It changes the world. Because the truths of God are really true. They're really real. I shouldn't have to say that. But in the culture we live in nowadays, we have to. These things are true. And so we live according to them. And as we live according to them, this world changes in a physical manner as well. But then also it changes in a spiritual manner. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Now, as Americans, we like to talk a lot about psychology, and psychiatry, and personalities, and all of that sort of stuff. And we leave it at the physical level. Like, this is the way that my brain is wired. You know, to be impulsive. Well, yes, but there are aspects of that that aren't godly. And so what is that? There's a spiritual reality there too. You know, motivations that aren't godly. There's a spiritual reality there too. And so as the truths of Christ are being brought into this world, they don't just change the physical world, they actually change us spiritually as well. They change my motivations. They change my tendencies. They change the way that I think about the world. They change the way that I interact with the world. There is a, this... There is a spiritual power in Christianity that nothing else in this world has. This is what our psychology movement, our counseling movement, our secular psychology movement is aiming for. They are trying to figure out through physical means how to change the spiritual world. That's what's going on. They're trying to do that through drugs and I'm not saying there's not a place for medication. There is a place for medication but I don't want to get totally into all that. But they're trying to change the spiritual world through physical means. But you know what? We have these truths that when applied, they change the spiritual world. 
They change us from the inside out. They change the way that we approach the world. They, change, they have the ability to change anxiety. They have the ability to change depression. They have the ability to change fear into hope. They have the ability to change hatred and bitterness into joy and love. They have the ability to do that. These truths, when applied into our lives, have the ability to change the very way that we look at the world, the very way that we interact with the world. They change us down into a spiritual level. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples. And that's what Jesus wants to demonstrate to us. So what does he call us to do? Live our lives according to his truth. Live our lives according to his teaching. Apply these things into our lives because they are true. You know, Carl Jung or Freud or Adams or Rogers or any of these other psychologists, people follow them as if they were messiahs. They think that these guys have somewhere along the line, they figured out the truth. And if we just properly applied Jungian psychology, or if we properly applied Rogerian counseling into this world, then this world would be changed and people would be fixed. But you know, the problem is it doesn't happen. People might feel better for a little while, but it doesn't change them. And now we've got the psychedelic movement. If we just properly apply psychedelics, I was listening to a guy talking about that. If we just properly applied psychedelics, we could get rid of all the wars and get rid of all the animosity and the enmity in this world. And I'm like, nope, it's not going to work. Because the material world doesn't have the power to change the the spiritual world. I almost said physical. The material world can't change the spiritual world, but the truths of Christ can because they bridge that gap. They change both the physical world and the spiritual world. So this is what Jesus is demonstrating. So he teaches these truths and then he applies these truths. So then what do we do? How do we disciple this world? How do we live these things out? We learn these truths and then we live them out. We teach these truths as we're living them out. Because that's what discipleship is. That's what apostleship is. And that's what God's trying to do in all of you right now. That's what God's trying to do in me too. And that's what God wants us to demonstrate to a world that needs it. It doesn't matter if you are without guile or if you are impulsive or if you, were, if you had been a liar. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a zealot for your nation or if you're a traitor to your nation. If you're a George Washington or a Benedict Arnold. Those things don't matter. Because once you're in Christ, you're new. So be a disciple of Jesus. And allow Jesus to take those personality tendencies. Because you know who Jesus said as the head of his church? <laughs> the impulsive one. <laughs> you know who became, you know, the apostle of love? They talk about the book of John as the gospel of love. This is the guy who wanted to burn the Samaritans to the ground. You think God can change a life? Praise God. Let him change yours. Learn his truths and apply them. Live them out. Trust God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are working in us. Lord, we thank you for that. I praise you for that. That's just crazy to think about, that the the hardships, the difficulties, and the frustrations, the joys, and the blessings, that all these things are given to me, to us, to disciple us. Or to make us more like Jesus. May we take the truths of Jesus then and apply them into our lives in each and every one of these situations. Lord, that we wouldn't represent Satan. Lord, that he wouldn't be our father. But that we'd represent you. That we'd live with you as our father. As our guide.
Bless us and guide us now. Be glorified in us, Lord, in this world. Because this world needs it. This world needs Jesus. So may we demonstrate him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.